Okay, Jesse, last week was pretty standard love murder fair. You know, jilted lover gets other lover to do some murder in a church parking lot. What's the story this week? Oh, you know, the huge. <laughs> when a drunken drifter's harrowing tales of escape point to a death farm and the most unlikely of serial killing suspects, a kindly pair of old grandparents, who is to be believed? I'm Andy Cassatt. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where normal seeming people are revealed to be anything but. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Okay, Andy. So this one <laughs> is a little wild. It's a little nutty. Most of the love murders we cover are one heinous act, often which is regretted soon after. I mean, think of like last week, you know, she did one killing and she felt super bad about it. This one is not that. There <laughs> is going to be a serious body count in this episode. Whoa, really? Like serial killer? Mm -hmm. Serial killer style. But it's really different. It's different than our previous serial killing couple, old Charlene and Gerald over there. Oh, yeah. This is really confusing and mysterious. And there's definitely some sociopathy involved. And I also... You know, as Andy knows, I celebrated my seventh wedding anniversary last week. Yay! Yay. Congrats! Thank you. Seven-year itch, baby. So while we were away, I was working on this episode. I told Nathaniel that on purpose, because I knew I was going to be working on it over our anniversary, I wanted to do one where the husband and wife are a team <laughs> and not where one of the spouses kills the other one. So this Just is a keeping that good, you know, anniversary spirit. <laughs> exactly. I was like, it's so romantic. They're married over 50 years and they kill a bunch of drifters together. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> He's like, I think we have very different definitions of romance, Jesse. <laughs> um, yes, I don't actually find that romantic. Don't worry, guys. I, it was a joke. These people are heinous. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to talk about it much more because I'm just going to tell you the story right now. Perfect. Let's do it. The day was turning to dusk, a nip in the air on this brisk rural Missouri day of October 17th, 1989. On hand were dozens of uniformed officers fruitlessly searching several miles wide for bodies that may or may not be there. A tip had been called in, a wild story by an alcoholic drifter who had recently only barely survived with his life from the very spot the police were now searching. He claimed to have seen skull and bones on this farm and been nearly killed by the man who worked the land. That farmer was an elderly grandfather named Ray Copeland, and the erstwhile farmhand named his grandmotherly wife as the co-conspirator. 
It seemed unlikely, but given a peek at Ray's criminal record, the tip warranted a search. Now, days into an exhausting and far-reaching search, the sheriff was wondering if he had been had. A murder would have been unheard of in the rural farmland outside of Chillicothe, Missouri. This was a slow and sweet place filled with the salt of the earth farmers and friendly townsfolk, a place where you could leave your door unlocked, a last oasis insulated from the crime and mayhem of big cities. All of this was about to change. The town would be horrified to discover a pair of serial killers in their midst, a couple who walked and talked and made their living the same way they did. A deputy alerted the sheriff that they had found something. The men yelled, get the shovel. The shovel sliced into the dirt floor of the barn too easily. By several inches down, the deputy exclaimed, good God, look at this. It's a damn shoe. A grimy <laughs> tennis shoe. <laughs> that was a quote directly from the book. I figured. <laughs> <laughs> Which I will get into my sources as soon as I'm done with my monologue. <laughs> A grimy tennis shoe revealed itself, attached to a foot and a pair of blue-jeaned legs. Up above the shin, the poor, unfortunate soul had been wrapped in black plastic. Ooh. Slowly and with deadly seriousness, the men excavated the body. Uncovering the top of the corpse, they discovered the feet of another. And then another. Three bodies lay buried head to toe in a straight line. Oof. Yikes. The body count would eventually rise to five, with many missing men unaccounted for, and the culprits were the most surprising suspects one could imagine. What could turn a kindly old farm couple into cold-blooded serial murderers? Well... You'll find out today on episode 20, The Serial Killing Senior Citizens. Oh my God, is that what we're calling it? <laughs> Maybe. Right now it's between that and Grandpa and Grandma Serial Killer. <laughs> serial Killer Senior Citizens really has a ring. I think so. It's really that uh, alliteration. Yeah, I feel like... Home. Okay, so who the hell are these deranged maniacs? Let's start with Ray Copeland. Oh, God. Okay. Ray was born in 1914 in the Ozarks of Arkansas. He was a strapping young hillbilly who was raised with the harsh and cruel backdrop of the Great Depression. So failed crops, no money, no jobs, and no hope punctuated his early life. He dropped out of school in the fourth grade and never learned to read or write. Oof, God. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have much of a shot. Ray was known as a good, tall worker. He was just about six foot five, which is, I feel like, really, really tall for being born in 1914. I think that's really tall in general. I mean, that's in four general, inches yeah. taller than Dan. Mm-hmm. Six five is yeah. huge. And they said they described him as having a fine back and an ability to work hard. That's such a farmer talk, you know? <laughs> it is. <laughs> he was also known as a conniver, liar, and thief at an early age. Ooh. Yeah. Not cute. He's not, he's not a good guy, you'll see. His first crude venture into livestock theft came in his teens when he stole his own father's hogs and sold them for profit in the next town over. Yeah, and that's like such 
such like honest work too, like for his dad mm-hmm. raising those hogs and getting them all beefed up and ugh. yeah. And apparently his parents kind of, it was impossible to spoil anyone during the great depression, but they kind of let him get away with a lot of stuff and enabled him his, a bit. Enabled him completely. Like he didn't, his dad covered up this whole theft, like let it go. Like even though they had no money, yeah, and didn't punish him at all. And his siblings said that he was completely enabled throughout his young childhood and teens and his early adulthood. Which, you know, you'll see he has quite the criminal record, including that he would later during the same teenage period, he would steal government checks from neighbors' mailboxes, which was so 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 shitty because the checks were sent to help Americans weather the Great Depression. That's like stealing he, someone's uh, what's it called? Their um, the, oh, their stimulus the, check. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what it's like. And so he yeah. would camp out. He knew when the post office worker would make his rounds, and he would camp out and steal their checks, then forge their signatures over to himself and cash it as his own. Yikes! That's not. Good. That's just lower than low too, because you're supposed to be neighborly. You're all supposed to be helping each other out through a hard time. Yeah, especially in farmland. Exactly. He could look you right in the eye and lie to you even then, John Copeland, Ray's older brother, said later. He seemed to be looking for an angle, you know, a way to shortcut things. And that's like the story of his life. Like, you know, we've talked about this a lot. Farming is incredibly hard work and it takes a very disciplined type of human being uh, with a lot of resolve to do that type of labor. And it's just interesting because he, I think he ends up in farm work because it's all he knows, but he's yeah. always looking for a con. He's always looking yeah. for a shortcut. In 1936, when Ray was 22, he was arrested in Harrison, Arkansas, and charged with forging government checks and sentenced to six months on federal charges and six months on state charges. In spring of 1940, his world was changed forever when he stopped by a doctor's office and met a young woman named Faye. Faye Della Wilson was 19 and almost aggressively sheltered. She had never really known a man who wasn't her relative. Like, she was raised way far away from people. She was one of, I think, something like seven kids. Yeah, she was one of seven kids. Whoa. And they were raised really, really religious and literally dirt poor. Their cabin had a dirt floor. So she went to school through the eighth grade and then dropped out to financially assist her family. And she started working as a laundry and cleaning person as early as 10 years old. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So she was working part-time for a couple years and then was full-time by the time she dropped out of eighth grade. Wow. Life had been hard for Faye, and she was in awe of the tall drink of water named Ray Copeland, who talked a pretty big game. He had lied, of course, about how much money and prospects he had, and it swept the young girl off her feet. So he's 26 and she's 19, uh, but he was really like a con man really early on. And and she was very immature and very sheltered. So even though it's only seven years difference, they had a lot of difference in worldliness. Okay. They were married only a month or two after their first meeting, and Faye had given birth to their first son by the year's end. Over the next nine years, the couple would have a total of five children, four boys and one girl named Everett Roy, Billy Ray, 
Betty Lou, Elvia Lee, and William Wayne. Whoa. I kind of dig those names. <laughs> those are like some real country names. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I think they're fantastic. I tried to convince Nathaniel Everett was a good boy's name, but he wasn't having it. <laughs> During that time period, so over that nine-year time period that they're having all of those children, the Copelands move from Arkansas to Fresno, California, back to Arkansas, then back to Fresno, and then finally, once more, back to Arkansas. Weird. Why? They had to do that so many times because Ray would steal from all of his employers. But why would you go back to Fresno if you stole from people there? I don't know if he, like, went back to a different farm or if he, like, knew the area or if he had connections or something. But for some reason, they ping-ponged between the greater Fresno area and uh, back, like, kind of in their home area in Arkansas that many times. His oldest son remembers that they had to flee California the last time because his father had been caught stealing some horses from his boss. So he was either dodging arrest or he might have made a deal with the horse owner to leave the state and never return. So the last time he was like out for good. Yeah. They were like, bye. (laughs) Bye. Please don't come back. So Ray's luck ran out in Arkansas when he was arrested and charged with cattle theft in late 1949. Oh, okay. So this is going to be the first time that I reference the book, which the book is The Copeland Killings by Tom Miller. It was great. It's like a very like 90s used book I bought on thrift books. It's originally from a a thrift store in Tampa. (laughs) Oh my God, no way. Yeah, it was out of print. So I I had to like dig out this copy. (laughs) Hilarious. But it was was a really good text. So yes, The Copeland Killings by Tom Miller. So like I just said, he was arrested in late 1949. A pattern that would dog Ray Copeland for the next half century started that year in Arkansas. He liked to steal livestock. Once a cow or pig is slaughtered or even resold, it's very difficult to prove ownership decades ago. I mean, I think even now it's kind of hard to prove ownership when you've stolen a pig, you know? Don't they tag them? Probably now. I wonder if they even like microchip them possibly now depending on It's so easy. I mean, they have like a little, it's a little gun and they just shoot it. But you can imagine like, 40s, 50s, 60s, even up to the so 80s hard. that it was so hard. Yeah. So Ray took advantage of the honor system between buying and selling these animals where deals were mostly secured by a handshake and a check. Like we said, it's like salt of the earth people that don't expect other people to be taking advantage of them, you know? Yeah. And this is happening in 1949, which was a totally different time, you know? So crazy. He saw the livestock buying and selling operations as an easy mark and saw the cash he could get from stealing livestock as pure profit. Once again, at age 33, he was convicted and sentenced to a year in jail. So Ray was mostly in jail or avoiding it when his schemes and thieving went belly up over the next couple decades. In between stints in prison that left his family destitute and usually on welfare, he mistreated them horribly. He was physically abusive with the kids and Faye. Whoa. Mm-hmm. It was not an improvement when he was home. Like, they had more money usually, but he was a real dickhead. He then they had also, to suffer for him. 
Yeah, yeah. And he was like emotionally abusive, physically abusive, the whole nine yards. Um, he never sexually abused the kids, but I'm pretty sure he probably maritally raped Faye. You know, he also ignored birthdays, Christmas and other holidays and shunned all affection. Like he would not buy them presents. He would not let Faye get them presents and he wouldn't even say happy birthday or Merry Christmas to them. Wow. Mm -hmm. The children described how he treated their mother as trash, often mocking her and calling her stupid, even though she was the only one in the couple who could read or write. Yeah, but you know what that is? Projection. Hmm? Ugh. The children felt largely emotionally abandoned by both parents as Faye rarely stepped in when Ray beat them, fearing his retaliation. Oh, yeah. So Ray was not only actively violent, but also just generally cruel. The family was so poor that the children only had one pair of shoes reserved for going to school. Throughout the long, freezing Midwest winters, he would make the kids perform farm chores barefoot. Oh. Barefoot. Shit. So they'd you know get how pneumonia. Cold it gets in the Midwest. Yeah. That's <laughs> fucked. It's totally fucked. They got so desperate they would cake their feet with cow shit to try to keep them warm. Oh These poor babies. my god. I know. And Ray would have boots on. So he'd have his own farm boots on. His feet would be totally warm and he would just laugh and make fun of them for putting the cow shit on their feet. Wow. What a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Another time, his son Al fell from a hay wagon and broke his wrist at the beginning of a work day, and Ray made him work throughout the entire day in blood-curdling pain. Like, it was a clean break. I mean, it was fully broken, only allowing Faye to take him to the emergency room after the complete day's work was done. Oh, can you think about how painful that would be? Your your hand's, like, hanging off, basically. Yeah. That's so brutal. In the 1960s, he was spending more time in jail than not after repeatedly passing bad checks to purchase cattle. Ray, you'll see, just doesn't believe that the rules apply to him. And this is especially true when it comes to dealing with the banks. I think that it's growing up in the Great Depression, he saw a lot of people's houses and farms and, you know, livestock being taken away by the banks when they couldn't pay it. And he just kind of got this really screwed up Robin Hood mentality, but like he was the good guy and and he's not, he's, he's a piece of shit, but he just doesn't care. So in his opinion, writing bad checks is screwing the banks over and no one else when really it's still screwing other people over, you know? Yeah. But he's not educated enough to know that. Exactly. Which also (laughs) there's a question in this entire story about Faye's involvement with this And let's consider for a fact that she had to be involved in a lot of this stuff because he can't write. Yeah, or can he read? He can't read either. So he can't read or write. So if these are a lot of like he's passing bad checks and check forgery is going on and stuff, she has got to be somewhat involved in it, you know? Yeah, or I mean, how old were the kids when this was happening? It's possible. I mean, this was all throughout their childhood and afterwards. Okay. So they okay. were old enough to, to potentially be complicit. But some of them talked to the author of this book. And also I did watch one episode of Wicked Attraction on ID Channel about this episode. It is called Murder at Twilight. I think it's season one, episode 12. And they had one of their sons was on the show too talking about oh, it. Oh, no so- way. 
Yeah. He's like a he's like an old farmer himself now. I think it was Al who was the one who was on it. Okay. Um but yeah, he it's interesting. It'll come up later what you know they think of their parents. Yeah. So Around the night, like the end of the 1960s, he managed to slightly clean up his act and purchase a 40-acre farm with a modest farmhouse. By that point, all but one of the children were out of the house. The homestead cost $6,000. Within five years, the couple had paid it off completely, and that was in due no small part to Faye's efforts. After her kids hit their preteens, she worked tirelessly at a variety of low-paying but back-breaking jobs. So she was doing farm work but also working full-time. Wow. After they moved to Missouri and purchased the farm, Faye spent 17 years working at the Midwest Quality Gloves Corporation, putting together gloves on an assembly line and getting paid only by the output. So she only got paid like per – like a couple cents per – gloves she put together yep uh the building had no cooling and really no heating it was like very scant heating so in the summer it was like they were working in essentially a sweatshop yeah and in the winter it was just like they had to bundle up and wear all of their gear and gloves to work in the the huge you know drafty factory Ugh. And she did that for 17 years. So she was laid off in 1983, and she went to work as a cleaning lady at the Holiday Motel in nearby Chillicothe. Chillicothe? Chillicothe. Chillicothe, like coffee. Chillicothe. 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 This is, if we leave any of this in, this is Andy the Midwesterner schooling Jesse the East Coaster about how to say Chili coffee. Chili coffee. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Professor of Midwestern Studies. I don't know if that's anything to brag about. <laughs> By the time Faye was in the middle of her tenure at the glove company, all of her children had left the house. So this is not surprising given what a dickhead Ray is, but it is super uncommon in farming families where usually at least one or two of the kids stays around to work the farm. Jesse, I just realized their names are Ray and Faye. <laughs> I was waiting for that, actually. <laughs> Ray and Faye, the serial killing senior citizens. I feel like we might need to incorporate their names in the title. I mean, that's too good. Ray and Faye. Ray, Ray and Faye. Ray and Faye's crazy days. So we got to do something. <laughs> Ray and Faye's crazy days. I know. They don't sound like serial killers, do they? No. They sound – well, Faye – What her name is so sweet. Faye Della. Faye Della Wilson Copeland. Like, there's no way she can do any crimes. I know. An old um, Ray. Ray is a scallywag, though. Worse than a scallywag. Scallywags can be kind of charming. Yeah. Ray's just a shitbag. Yeah. He, he sounds like a shitbag. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, it's just it's it's usually one of the kids sticks around, inherits the farming business, you know. But Ray yep. was such an abusive, cruel old bastard that every single one of their five children left the home around seventeen or eighteen, just as early as they possibly could. Yeah, get they're the like, fuck I'm out. out. I yeah. owe nothing to you. You're a piece of shit. So, who do you think is forced to take over all of the hard farm labor? Faye. Mm-hmm. That's who. 
So she would get up at like four in the morning to do all of the milking and other farm chores before she went to the glove sweatshop or to clean up messes at the motel all day. Yeah. Uh, which is an important side note. Remember when we're all traveling again, I'm sure none of you guys are going to hotels and motels, but tip your maid, man. Yeah. Just do it because it's not a fun job. And I think people forget all the time, you know? Yeah, it's definitely, especially right now, there's so many extra steps that they have to do. Yeah, so tip tip your cleaners, guys. Um, she's also in her 60s by now. So this is a time, especially if we're talking like the 70s, the 80s, people used to retire around like 50, 55. Yeah, she no, should it's really, fucked up. She should really be retired. And instead, she's having essentially – double, triple shifts with what she has to do at home and what she has to do, you know, to make some money for the family. And is Ray working? So he he works other people's farms. He works his own farms. It looks like they sold livestock and vegetables, so they probably had a farm stand. Okay. And he's still, like, in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s, he's still going to jail for stretches because he's a dickhead. Oh, God. Yeah. Coworkers said she rarely ever smiled and never mentioned Ray or her personal life. I mean, oh, I won't do that. I know. You just kind of put your head down at work. That's like mm-hmm. so shitty. Her children said she never complained. And from the age of 10, it just seemed like hard work had been all she had ever known, you know? Yeah. Having spent quite a few stints in prison at this point, Ray started to use hitchhiker drifter types as pawns in his schemes now. So he had been, like, going to prison a shit ton. And he's like, hmm, how can I use other people to not get myself in trouble? So in that era, according to (laughs) those who attended the same sales, Ray would start showing up at various cattle sales with hitchhikers and drifters. The pair would sit apart on the sale barn bleachers. Ray would signal to a hitchhiker his intentions to buy a group of pigs or cows, tipping his hat in most cases to signal staying in the rising bid. The pair would then buy the cattle, using Ray's judgment as to when to buy or bow out of a rapidly rising bid. Then, in a stroke of real brazenness, Ray Copeland would have the hitchhiker sign Ray Copeland to the check for the purchase. The check would, of course, bounce, and Ray Copeland would have by then resold the cattle for good money, Stashing it safely away. When the bank would eventually notify him of the bounce check, Ray would plead innocence by claiming, correctly in fact, that the signature on the check wasn't in his handwriting because he got somebody else to sign it. Mm -hmm. And would he pay these drifters or would they? Supposedly he would. The sale barn would then, in most cases, end up having to cover the check. Not a very sophisticated, granted, but it worked dozens of times for him before they were like, we're not selling to you or anyone associated with you, you know? Yep, yep. Um, the hitchhikers would soon disappear from around Chillicothe after a couple of rounds of check writing ventures. The assumption is that they simply drifted on, you know? Maybe they got $50 or something off of Ray for the scheme. No one, however, really knows what happened to those men. So as you'll see, the confirmed victims of Ray and maybe Faye were all men that he met and used in this capacity. But he was doing this 
really early on. Like the the scene that we outlined in the beginning happened in 1989, and he was doing this as early as 1970. Whoa. Mm-hmm. It is entirely possible that Ray, you know, that's 19 years difference. It's almost two decades difference, was much younger and stronger and more mobile. And maybe he could hide the bodies better back then because nobody knows what happened to any of these guys that were kind of part of the scheme. So crazy and so perfect for him to use hitchhikers because people obviously yeah. don't even think about it. They're like, oh, Especially they just, you know, continued back on. then, you know, there was like now even, you know, even people that are traveling type people or hitchhikers, they use social media. People would yep. notice that somebody was gone back Vanished. then. If- Yep, exactly. So these people were just gone and he was, he knew exactly what he was doing. He would go to homeless shelters to pick up these men. Ew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the police were aware of the cattle schemes, but they were having a hard time pinning Ray down. They managed to track down one singular hitchhiker named Gerald Perkins, so at least this guy was alive, who told the investigators at length about how Ray promised to pay him $300 a week and room and board and educate him on the cattle sales business, which of course was an incredible offer. We're talking 1970. That's a lot of money, especially for guys who are down on their luck and potentially learning how to do a trade. Yep. After he had arrived in the farm, he was forced into the fraudulent check business and he ended up signing checks Ray provided him with, with names like Ray Moore, Roy Rollins, Stanley Rostron, or William Hull. And who are all those cats? I think that they were either people he had stolen checks from. Okay. Or they were just false names. Okay. In those days, Ray Copeland was apparently operating by stealing blank imprinted business checks. So again, that might have been people that he look he worked for or other people yep. he like trusted and somehow got to steal their checkbook from yep which would make sense why he was having the drifters sign those names the ones that went yep. with the checks but if you tell someone to sign a name isn't like he thinks that he's not going to get in trouble because he's telling someone else to he, sign a name he's not signing it he is is like, it because is it because he can't write or is it because he doesn't know how to spell or is it because he thinks he's not going to get in trouble because all of those don't I don't know. I don't know what his end goal of this was. Um, He was arrested in 1970 after Perkins gave his statement, but the case never got prosecuted because all they had to go on was Gerald Perkins' word. And unfortunately, Gerald was an alcoholic and they couldn't keep him sober enough to testify. Oh, man. So the the authorities in this area know that he is no good. In 1970 and 71, he was arrested for more check forgery, and that's apparently when Faye put her foot down. She told him that at that point they were either about to start drawing Social Security or they were drawing Social Security, and the farm was nearly paid off. So she was like, why are you doing this? We yep. are finally going to be in a good financial situation. You don't need to be doing this anymore. I can't handle the farm by myself and all of her various jobs. And it was just embarrassing and lonely when he was gone because all their kids are gone, you know? Yeah, she's like working three jobs and he's standing over someone in like their barn telling them what name to write on a check. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. And she's like, for what? For like 
a couple hundred dollars for maybe like bilking somebody out of a few head of cattle? Is that worth like you going to jail repeatedly? Yes. Not smart, dude. Mm-mm. So Ray, when his wife kind of finally put her foot down, which sounds like the only time in their marriage that she ever did, he heard it as don't get caught, not don't do bad. Uh, and you know, spent- that could have just been that could have just been because he doesn't know his vocabulary. <laughs> Possibly. That could be. So he would spend the next decade honing his evil plans. Though he managed to stay out of prison for a little while, things were capital letter B-A-D bad by the mid-80s. So first of all, I remember because my parents had a farm in the 80s, the late 70s, early 80s were a tremendously difficult time for all family-owned farms. It was just a time of big farming corporations that pushed all the little guys out and there was just different regulations that were being passed that made it really, really, really hard for uh, family farms to survive. So he was definitely hit with that. And he also had never been a great businessman or farmer as it is. And he's also now past 70 with a bad back and he's near death and the farm's in bankruptcy. So things are Andy's a horrible person. (laughs) Andy's a horrible person. So just not all around, not good and you know we don't really wish him the best we kind of wish Faye had it better you know yeah so the Copelands did manage to stave off disaster by transferring the deed to one of their sons and like somehow you know going through a loophole and he was like a new owner and then they arranged a payment plan with one of the local banks but this just pissed Ray off more because now he was beholden to a bank and he had to make payments and they could bother him about his payment schedule and all of that stuff. And he was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to make these banks pay. And he didn't care if he used hired hands as collateral. Okay. So by this time, he's pretty old and he had exhausted like most of his schemes. So... He tried stealing cattle and selling them himself. He tried stealing payroll and government checks and forging the signature. He tried finding drifters and using them to forge checks to buy cattle and quickly reselling the critters and pocketing the cash. But none of those schemes had worked for very long. Ray Copeland kept getting caught. He kept going to prison. It was now time for the ultimate plan. In the mid-1980s, it gradually came to him. He'd find drifters, those aimless young men who'd roam the countryside, the guys who'd be called homeless in the big cities, guys who'd work for a day or two for cash, and then travel on. Ray would promise them cash and a place to eat and sleep, telling them he needed their help in his cattle buying operations. Basically the same stuff that he had used before when he got them to forge checks. Yeah. But this time he was going to stay clear of the banks and the bad checks, and he hatched the final touch to his latest scheme. He'd have the drifters open their own P.O. boxes for an address. Then they'd open checking accounts in their own names, and he'd have them write the bad checks for the cattle. Once that was done (laughs) and the scheme was run a few times, he would get rid of the check writers themselves. Cattle, stray dogs, and wildlife were easily destroyed around most farms with a single shot to the back of the head from a small caliber, usually 22 rifle. Neat and simple. This seems like very short Connie, you know? Very short Connie and very complicated for, you know, scoring a few thousand bucks. 
Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, it's so interesting that you don't know whether Faye is involved yet to this point, because that seems like she'd be even more pissed about this if she was right? pissed about the checks. Yeah. Like you're going to literally use someone for a small amount of money and then kill them. And then you're going to have to find out where to put their body. Well, this is really interesting because keep questioning that throughout this story. They never talked about the murders. Even when they get caught, this is never something where they reveal all. It's not like, you know, a lot of our cases where eventually someone involved in the murder just comes clean. Yeah. These two really stay mum. They really dummy up in love murder terms. So it's it's always a huge question mark at just how involved Faye was in the murder. Yeah, it's crazy. The Victory Mission was a homeless shelter in Springfield, Missouri, and a frequent hunting ground for Ray. The chaplain, Dan Pizas, who worked there in 1988 and 89 when Ray was just a regular visitor, said this of his shtick. He'd work the dining tables going from man to man, telling them he'd pay them $50 a day to drive a cattle truck or some routine like that. He was real tight-lipped when I tried to talk to him about what he was doing and to sort of check him out. He just grunted or nodded, nothing more than that, and he kept up his business. Oh, it's because he doesn't know how to talk. And he's sketchy. So mm-hmm. sketchy. Ray would also appeal to the men's sympathy, claiming his bad back meant he needed help on the farm and his dwindling hearing made buying cattle at auctions nearly impossible. Once the men were hooked, he'd make sure they didn't have anyone in their lives who'd be asking any questions. He'd say, do you have family? Can you stay at my place and avoid contacting anyone? I want you to work for me and to not tell anyone where you are. I don't want a bunch of your kinfolk traipsing through my property, you know? Huge red flag. Hello. Such such a gem. I wonder also a lot of the guys that he hired were fairly young. So they're guys that are in their 20s or 30s. And some of them are older. There's a couple guys we'll talk about that are in their 40s and 50s. But still, I wonder if they're looking at this guy in his mid-70s and they're like, oh, I'm fine. I could overpower him, you know? Yeah. So weird. Yeah. It should be mentioned, though, that this is this is not necessarily out – of the usual realm of realm of behavior, him telling them that they can't uh, contact anyone or bring like a wife with them to live on the farm with him. That is weird. But a lot of time farmers, especially aging farmers are looking for cheap help. You know, they're looking for, and these guys need work. So it, it kind of is a normal thing. So that's why I think that the chaplains and the people who worked at the homeless shelters didn't like chase them off. They were like, no, you know, yeah, no. Yeah, we had a whole lot of hired hands with dubious intent on our own farm throughout the years. <laughs> and some of them were like amazing. I mean, my parents had like some full families, which was really fun for us because they might have had kids the same age as us, like come and they had just like sold their farm to the government or something. And now they just like worked on our farm for a little while until they like bought a new farm. And that was really great. But we had a couple real, real sketch balls too. And there was like one guy that I think stole. I remember the <laughs> Yeah. What was his he name? Was, there was three bills. It was one of the bills. <laughs> and I can't remember which one, but I think like two out of three of the bills were really bad. And like I think one of them stole like a bunch of my parents' farm equipment, like in the middle of the night. They just woke up and he was gone and so was the farm equipment. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not that this is totally out of 
the ordinary, but you know, usually it's just trying to get cheap labor. It's not trying to pin crimes on these poor men and then murder them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first known victim was Dennis Murphy, whom Ray ensnared in 1986 when Dennis was only 27 years old. Dennis had recently been through tough times. He lost a string of farm jobs and he was suffering from a heartbreaking divorce, which had turned him to alcohol, which of course only exacerbated his troubles. He welcomed the opportunity to work for Ray and get his young life turned around. That's like another reason that's this is really sad is a lot of these guys were at the missions or the homeless shelters to get cleaned up and to turn their lives yeah. around. Like they were really good guys who had just fallen on tough times and this was their opportunity. And they're looking at this guy, like he's going to give me $50 a day. I have a place to stay. You know, there's obviously like no drinking or drugs on the farm. Like this is such an opportunity to turn my life around, you know, which is why he saw <laughs> that as a weakness that he was going to take advantage of. He's very sociopathic. It's it's yeah. all like not being a part of human nature, just exploiting it, you know? Yeah. So the first thing Ray did was take him to a small nearby town uh, called Ludlow, Missouri, and instruct him to open a P.O. box. He then gave Dennis some money to open a checking account at the local bank, using the brand new P.O. box as his address. After he was provided with a book of checks, Ray instructed the young man to write a blank check made payable to Faye, just in case Ray mm. and Dennis were in an accident on their way to the farm or from a cattle auction. Faye would then be able to access the money in the account, which to this point was still Ray's technically. Okay. But Dennis had never had a checking account of his own, and he was still really excited for this opportunity, so he didn't even question it. He's like, Sure, whatever happens, happens. After that, Ray spent the next week or two squiring Dennis to cattle auctions and instructing him to buy certain heads of cattle and other livestock. Dennis spent a collective $13,732 at three different auctions. Given to him by Ray? Yes. So he was using this checkbook that Ray okay. set him up with. But he had to know that the checks were going to bounce because Ray only gave him like a couple hundred dollars to start the checking account. But Ray would tell them, oh, I'm going to I'm going to go put more money in. Let's just do this first. Mm -hmm. So obviously these checks are all going to bounce. The livestock. I mean, I guess like there's something, you know, smart about him cheating the system to where he like this is before people could cross check checks yeah and he was he was taking advantage of this honor system because yeah they would hand over the check and then the seller would just hand over the livestock and then he'd load it up and he'd immediately go sell it to somebody and that person would give him a good check or cash yeah because they were honest Mm -hmm. so he was just taking advantage of a community that trusted each other you know yeah By the time week two came, the checks had started to bounce, of course, and Ray needed to get rid of Dennis. As Murphy worked in a field on a nearby farm that Ray Copeland also worked, Ray took a 1950 vintage Marlin 22 caliber lever action rifle and sent a slug through the back of the young man's skull. Jesus. He didn't even see it coming. Dennis had been wearing, like, farm clothes and also a belt 
with a buckle with the name Dennis engraved on it. And that's one of the things that they would use to identify him later on. After making sure that Dennis was indeed dead, Ray stripped him of any jewelry or personal effects, except for mysteriously the, the, the belt buckle that would come back to bite him in the butt, <laughs> wrapped him in black plastic sheeting and dropped his body down a 40-foot well on the property using a tractor. Ice Whoa, pole. and this wasn't even his property? No. So he worked on a couple different farms and I'm not sure if that was some sort of agreement they had for him to either rent or use the land or the barns or if he was just on their property illegally. Um, I know that my parents have a ton of acreage and we actually have other farmers who rent our fields or they use our fields for their livestock to graze on. And so I don't know exactly what the deal was, but he had access to at least two neighboring farms where he did a lot of the dirty work. Okay. So it's totally possible uh, that there were more murdered handyman before, but Dennis was the first one to be found, A, later on, but also to arouse suspicion with this new system. Okay. The Dennis Murphy bad checks were the first ones to hit Gary Calvert's desk at the Livingston County Sheriff's Office. The first ones to raise the suspicions that something was not right there. And Deputy Calvert shouldn't have necessarily known of the bad checks because they were written in neighboring Carroll County. So he was kind of going to banks in one area and then going to auctions in another area. Yeah. But when Carroll County authorities investigated the bad checks taken by the livestock auction, witnesses said they thought that the unknown check writer, this Dennis Murphy, may have been with Mooresville's Ray Copeland. Besides, the checks were drawn on a Livingston County bank, the one in Ludlow. So Deputy Calvert paid his first visit of what would end up being many visits to the Ray Copeland farm out by Mooresville. Calvert, in his usual low-key and unassuming style, went to Ray Copeland's door and asked the old farmer if he'd ever heard of Dennis Murphy. Sure have, old Ray said, somewhat surprisingly to Calvert. Copeland said Dennis Murphy had worked for him briefly, and Calvert said he had documents showing that Murphy had written a series of bad checks at cattle sales barns. Ray Copeland's reaction to those facts again surprised Gary Calvert. Fact is, I got a bad check on him too, Copeland said, fishing up the check he'd had Dennis Murphy sign weeks earlier. It's he wrote like me. It's so, mm-hmm. it's just so dumb because A, you shouldn't be doing this anywhere near where you live. Where no. you all land. Like, yes. you can't, don't shit where you eat, bro. And then two, it's like they know, they've been on to you for decades of doing the same <laughs> shit. And you're doing this in your own backyard. Everybody's like, yeah, that guy with the bad checks, he was with old Ray who's a stealer. The other bad check guy. Yeah, the other <laughs> bad check guy. Jesus Christ. Oh, God. Ray's the worst. He's one of those guys – which I feel like is a lot of the guys in our stories, but Ray especially is not that bright, that thinks that they're smarter than everybody mysteriously, even though they have no signs of intelligence, you know? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So Ray did not waste much time finding his next victim. Literally bright and early the next morning after he stuffed (laughs) poor Dennis down a well, he got into his 1984 pickup and drove to the home sweet home mission in Bloomington, Illinois, 
There, literally the next day, he met Wayne Warner, a good-natured and personable 40-year-old Vietnam vet. I mean, right back at it. Didn't waste any time. Is this – how soon after is this after Calvert came? This is before Calvert came. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So in between that com- – like him killing a guy and that conversation, he already found a new guy. And it's like you're driving all the way to Bloomington, Illinois to find someone. You should really be doing these crimes elsewhere. Somewhere else. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Why not just go over to a cattle auction in Bloomington while you're at it, you know? I, I know. This is so – he's so dumb. I was telling this story to Nathaniel and I was like, brass balls on this guy. And he goes – I don't know. A lot of these guys, you could ask the question, brass balls or tiny little brains? <laughs> I was like, always a combination. Always. Yeah. So Wayne had suffered from PTSD, which led to long bouts of drinking and drugging and occasional violent outbursts, especially when he was intoxicated. So he had come to the mission like Dennis to clean up and start his life over again. And he'd even met a woman he was engaged to at Alcoholics Anonymous. So he was really, really doing – he was working the program. He was getting his life together. He'd met somebody he loved who was also clean, you know. Doesn't sound like a good victim for Ray here. No, especially because he's a little older. So he's – you'd think a little worldlier, you know. I think that he was – not the ideal victim for those reasons, especially because he had somebody in his life. Yeah. But he was really, really desperate for the money to start over again and start a life okay. and try to get a place for him and his fiance to live because he's still living in the homeless shelter at this point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the the money aspect of what Ray was offering probably seemed like a dream to him, you know? Lorianne, the fiancé, later said he was really trying to get things right, and he saw this deal with this Copeland guy as the chance he'd been waiting for. It's all so sad now, just how close he may have been to getting back on top of things. Yeah, so like I said before, make no bones about it. Ray Copeland knew exactly what he was doing, and it wasn't just that he knew no one would be looking for these men. Obviously, Lorianne would be looking for Wayne later. He actually had a vendetta against guys who are like drifters or hitchhikers. So Ray's son, Al, um, later told the author of this book a story about um, a time that he was driving in a car with his dad. And he said something specific about these types of men. One day in Illinois, when Al was barely a teenager, the two were riding in a pickup truck when his father spotted a hitchhiker looking for a lift along the shoulder of a farm-to-market road. The young man was obviously down on his luck and appeared to be carrying all of his earthly belongings in a small suitcase at his feet. The hitchhiker didn't get a ride from Ray Copeland, but his ears would have been burning if he knew what the crusty old Copeland said about him. Welfare bums, Ray snorted. All they do is live off the taxes and drink and bum around and sponge off of everybody else. They ought to be got rid of, Ray continued. Ain't too sure it wouldn't be doing everybody a favor to just take them out and shoot them. Just shoot them down. Just get rid of them. And how so, old was Al when he said that? That's like so traumatizing to hear he your like parents say. 13. They said he was barely a Ugh. teenager when this happened. Gross. Yeah, so Al, when he found out about all of this much, much later, he was like, oof, a chill ran up his spine. He was like, I should have known my dad was always capable of doing something like this. Yeah, but how can you if you're a good person? Also, if you're – 
if you're a good person and if your dad is that bad, like you wouldn't be surprised he would say something like that. No, 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 no. But you would never, your brain would never go, oh, he could actually hurt that person or mm-hmm. him saying he wants to get rid of them actually means lining him up and burying him in the dirt. Like it doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. So he's just a bastard. So once again, he went through the P.O. box checking account and cattle auction routine with Wayne, this time clearing around $7,000 worth of cattle. By mid-November, barely a month after Dennis's murder, Wayne's checks began to bounce and it was time for Wayne to go. Ray convinced Wayne to help him stack some hay in yet another farmer's barn, shot him in the back of the head just like Dennis, and buried him under some loose planks in the barn floor. Days after the secret burial, the barn was filled just as Ray knew it was going to be, filled to the rafters with thousands of bales of hay. So his body wouldn't be discovered for months and months and months. Crazy. Yeah. So he's – it's interesting that he's not burying any of these men on his own property, which – is again, it's that same thing that you're talking about when you pointed out that, like, he's still responsible, but he's like, if it's not on my property, if it's not my signature, if I'm not writing the checks, it, it's like I didn't do it. Yeah, it's just like, no, dude. So it also is around, like, this time in the investigation that the police have a very hard time believing that Faye Copeland was not involved, at least as a lookout, because, you know, all of this work of hauling the bodies, cover them, covering them with plastic, burying them or putting them somewhere. You have to remember this is a mid-70s guy with a bad back and bad health. So yeah. any of this would it take even a young person a considerable amount of time to do. And he's doing it in barns that aren't even his. So it would stand to reason he would need at least a person to be a lookout, if not a person helping him, you know? Yeah, you'd think. Yep. He's a big boy. He's he's a big boy, and he was once described as having a good back. I mean, not not anymore, but time takes everything away. (laughs) Time steals from us all. (laughs) Jesse, let's not get super dark today. (laughs) Our youth, our health, our backs. The love and life in our hearts. <laughs> this is Just really kidding. taking a turn. <laughs> Sorry. This is one of those days. I'm kidding, guys. I'm totally fine. I promise. Oh Every day gets God. better, right? We get more wisdom. Yay, wisdom. <laughs> I'll take my, my tits and my skin back and trade you some wisdom. <laughs> Tits and skin. Oh, God. I want my tits and skin back. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. All right. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. Ray and potentially Faye, if we believe she's involved, had an almost two-year cooling off period after Wayne. So, it's possible that there were some other people involved during this two-year period that we don't know about, but there's also no evidence of the check fraud going on so it it does stand to reason that it was an actual real cooling off period Um, and this was most likely due to the heat that was coming Ray's way because he had been seen with Wayne as well 
So the cops were back at his doorstep being like, hey, I was here a month ago. You're associating <laughs> with another guy? And he's like, yeah, can you believe it? Another guy is running bad checks and gave me one too. Pulls it right out of his fucking front pocket. Out of his overall bib pocket. He pulls it out. Which, by the way, when you see the pictures, guys, he goes to court in like overalls, like farmer's overalls. At least That's he's like, committed. He's very committed. Um, Yeah. Like, he's like, can you believe it? And the deputies are like, no, actually, sir, I cannot believe it. But they they don't think he's killing them. They think he's just involved because he's a scummy person, you know? Yeah. So they got their eyes on him. And so th- that seems like why he took a two-year break here. They're like, we got our eyes on you. And he's like, all right, cool. And then when they walk away, he's like, well, their eyes aren't on me anymore. <laughs> I can go murder someone else again now until their eyes get back on me. <laughs> he's exactly, he's like, he's like a toddler. Like Alden thinks she's invisible if she closes her eyes. <laughs> she closes her eyes and she goes, where did Alden go? And I'm like, I don't know. I can't see her. <laughs> so that's basically his criminal brain activity is the same place is my two-year-old daughter right now yeah toddler level uh-huh so he was back up to old tricks in october of 1988 when he met and suckered 27 year old jimmy dale harvey jimmy dale had had a really tough go at life he had a motorcycle accident kind of early on that left him with a traumatic brain injury that caused epilepsy and <sighs> it made it really really hard for him to stay employed I know. So after many failures at holding down a steady job, he resorted to a brief life of crime and was arrested for burglary. After his release, he was staying at the mission while he attended truck driving school and he was trying to find a job in that industry, which any industry is hard to get into if you've been convicted of a crime. When he unfortunately met greedy old murderous Ray... The routine was the same, P.O. Box, checks, cattle auction. This time, most likely Ray's attempt at flying under the radar, he only passed about $1,200 in bad cattle checks. That's a bummer. Yeah, I think he's trying to keep it low. So that if you still kill someone, they're still going to be missing. It's still going to be the same risk. Ray. Yeah. I wonder if he thinks that if, if the checks are for smaller sums, like they won't bother chasing down the leads. Maybe his tiny brain thinks that. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So days later, on October 25th, 1988, Ray dispensed of the young man in Neil Bryan, a neighboring farmer's barn, under the guise of doing some farm work once again. Jimmy Dale would sadly be the first of the three men to eventually be buried in that barn. How do they know the exact dates of when he killed these guys if they never come clean? It's based on when they were passing the checks and his activity and when the auctions were and when the um, checks bounced. And Ray did kind of talk to the police, you'll see later on. Okay. Um, he just didn't really confess. So some of these I'm, I'm imagining they're guesstimates, but it's around well, these times. Yeah. Just curious. 
Less than six weeks later, on December 8th, 1988, Jimmy Dale was joined by 27-year-old John Wayne Freeman from Tulsa, Oklahoma. John's father had died in Vietnam, a fracture that had sent his family reeling and a sadness that never healed in John's heart. Despite his best efforts, John constantly battled his addictions, which led him to the Springfield, Missouri mission where he was preyed upon by Ray Copeland. Ray did the same routine, this time putting John up to writing $1,400 in bad checks and immediately terminating him in the coldest way possible. John left behind an eight-year-old son who would never get the opportunity to know his father better as he grew, just as John wouldn't get the opportunity to become the man and father he so desperately wanted to be for his child. Yeah, I mean, he's getting sloppy now. Yeah, there's people that actually are that care about these guys, you know? Yeah, yeah. In early spring 1989, Ray started the deadly cycle once more, picking up his youngest known victim, 20-year-old Arkansas native Paul Jason Cowart. He went by PJ and had been a high school dropout who hitchhiked across the country several times and already had one failed marriage under his belt by the tender young age of 20. His mother described his wandering as something that came naturally to him. His own father had been a drifter who abandoned the family when PJ was only two. Okay. He always wondered what was over the next hill, she recalled. He was a seeker, a traveler. When he would come through Arkansas, his mother, Edith Chillin, would baby him, trying to get him to settle down close by, sewing labels into his clothes like he was a 10-year-old boy going to camp. And they would find some of those clothes with his name sewed in them later. Oh. Yeah, Jason this- is such like a 90s name, I feel like. It's it like is. 1980. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's even, I mean, it's crazy how modern the story is. When they find the bodies, it's only 1989. We're talking uh, like Great Depression era cattle rustling right now. We're talking about something that should be happening in the 1800s, not 1989. Yeah. I mean, it's just, he's an old man. He is an old man who doesn't know what to do. Like, he's just up to his old tricks. MTV is happening elsewhere all elsewhere in the world right now and he's still doing his cattle schemes over here oh he's such a fucking loser he really also he's just like so old like the same thing over and over again like and and the rewards are so little dwindling dwindling rewards you know yeah so yeah, this this mama really, really, really loved her son. The last time Edith spoke to PJ, he was apparently over the moon for this opportunity. Ray Copeland had offered him $400 a week plus room and board. That's huge. Yeah. <sighs> By the time the cops would chase down the bounce checks that PJ spent on Ray's instructions, that poor baby was already executed in the ground. Head to toe with Jimmy Dale and John Wayne. Hmm. When his body was discovered, he was only wearing an undershirt and underwear, leading investigators to believe he was shot and killed while sleeping in the Copeland home. So, Ew. Th- yes, they basically, it was easy for him to do it in the cover of night in his own house. But if that is true, which it was never confirmed through Faye or Ray, it seems obvious that Faye knew what was going on. You can't shoot somebody staying at your house and then take him and bury him in a neighboring farmer's barn without your wife knowing. Yeah, or at least being like, where did he go? 
Yeah, even if he did it when she was away, which seems unlikely if he was sleeping because she was actually at home at night usually at least. Yeah. It seems it seems very unlikely. So after the untimely death of dear PJ, Ray Copeland met and hired the no-good rascally hero of our story, Jack McCormick. You'll like Jack. Jack's a character. So Tom Miller described the Copeland-McCormick combustion as kismet. He said, both were aging con men. Both had a dark side. Both were always on the prowl for any of life's shortcuts. If Ray Copeland's weakness was money and violence, Jack McCormick's was whiskey. And where Ray Copeland had a brutal bloody side, Jack McCormick had a clownish side and a ready smile. When he wore a chin beard, as he frequently did, he bore a striking resemblance to a leprechaun. (laughs) Oh, my God. McCormick had drifted from a once-stable family in Idaho after the death of his wife in the late 1970s, and he had spent the ensuing years drowning himself in booze. He had worked in Alaska and Florida. He had sold his blood to buy wine. He had stolen cars and trucks and then been unable to recall where he had left the stolen vehicles. Because he's too drunk. Because he's too drunk. (laughs) Spoken like a true Irishman. Yes, exactly. (laughs) He was also really, really smart, which is why this is so unfortunate. And he had a great gift of gab. But even though he's incredibly likable, he clearly had a boatload of demons. Yeah. So, like I said, he had worked all over the country, eventually getting let go for drinking. In North Dakota, he'd worked for a funeral home for a while, only to be fired when he drove a casket to the wrong cemetery and sat there (laughs) while grieving relatives of the deceased waited at a totally different (laughs) burial place, not knowing where the body was. And he just sat there and was like, I don't know, isn't the funeral here? So, yeah, he had worked all over the the country, and he had also spent years as a carny traveling the Midwest, when finally, at 57 years old, he ended up working the front desk at the Victory Mission, where he first came across Old Ray. Jack had been around the block enough times to smell a good scam when it was close by. He thought he could con the old con man, and he had a feeling that there was money to be had in this cattle scheme. Hilarious. Uh, Yeah. So there's like con man versus con man over here. (laughs) Jack's first tip off that something wasn't quite right was when Faye showed him to his small room in the farmhouse and told him he'd have to store his belongings under the bed because the closet was full. When McCormick peeked in the closet, he saw it was full to the brim with differently sized men's clothing. I mean, I was going to say bodies, but yeah, that's like pretty much... Pretty much the same thing. That's so weird. It's so weird they didn't get rid of them. Oof. So creepy. So at dinner the first night, Ray outlined their plans for the next day to open a checking account in Jack's name. And Jack inquired about a friend of his. So it was a friend that he'd been at the mission with because Ray had been using that as a hunting ground before he hired Jack. And so he had gone to with Ray to work. And we have no idea what happened to this guy, by the way weeks earlier and ray gruffly told him that he had left to go be with his sick mother in california and jack was like okay i'm pretty sure that guy's mother was in memphis so they have got the closet of clothes then he's like this guy was definitely from memphis and not california but he also is a hardcore drinker so he's like 
maybe I remembered that wrong. Like, I, I don't know. So he was like, already his spidey sense is going off that something is not right here. And right away, the Copelands are pretty sure that they have their hands full with Jack, too, because on his second day at the farm, he decided to take a walk around and, like, peek in all of their barns and stuff. And Faye came running out and screamed at him that she didn't want him poking his nose around their farm. So they're like, okay, what do we get with this guy? He's like, something's weird here. And then when Ray took him to the cattle auction, Ray at this point had learned his lesson enough to stay far away from the guys writing the bad checks. He wasn't even going into the auctions anymore. He was trying to get guys that were smart enough to like follow his instructions. And he was staying in the parking lot. And so when Ray stayed in the truck, he had Jack go out and he was supposed to bid on this certain head of cattle situation. I don't know how many cows it was, but it was it was something that that Ray wanted. And Jack okay. came back empty handed and was like, oh, no, the price went up too high. So I, I dropped out of the bidding. Sorry, you wouldn't want to spend that much because Jack was smart. So he was like, I know a good deal when I see one, you know? Yeah. And Ray's like, fuck you, bro. Like, of course, he's not going to pay that money. He doesn't care how much they go for. It. He's like, if I tell you to buy something, you buy it and you don't think about it. I'm the one who does the thinking here. So he exploded into rage, which Jack was like pretty certain that he was going to be happy with him because he wasn't letting him get ripped off, you know? He's like, uh. <laughs> yeah. So after that, uh, Jack McCormick was like over the whole thing. Both of the Copelands were like really pissed with him. And he was like, this place is creepy. These people are freaking weird. There's so much bullshit going on. He's like, okay, guys, I got to go. He'd only been there for a few days when he was like, I'm leaving. This isn't working out for anyone. Um, so on August 10th, 1989, he, the night before was the night he told them he was going to move on. Everything came crashing down. The Copelands got him up at five in the morning and Faye left for Chillicothe on a shopping trip. Jack began gathering his things up in anticipation of leaving. Ray's mood was dark, even darker than usual. And he wanted to get out while the getting was good. Like Jack knew that things were not going well and there was an air yeah. of danger. So Ray was like, it's fine. I'm going to take you into town eventually. But um, before you leave, I need help with one last thing. Yeah, I need help for you. <laughs> I, need, I need you to go stand over there and turn around and count to 10. <laughs> I just really want somebody to play hide and seek with. I, I've been missing it out for all these years. So Here's a handle of whiskey first. Exactly. So Ray told him he needed help to chase a raccoon out of a tight spot in the barn so that he could shoot the raccoon. Yeah. Please tell – well, we know Jack is smarter than this, but yes. like, come Wait, on. listen to this though. So just as it's getting light, the two men headed to the barn with a frightened McCormick noticing a tractor parked near the barn. A small flat trailer was hitched to the tractor and it held a roll of black plastic sheeting and a shovel. <laughs> he made it any more obvious he might have just put up a sign that was like I'm about to shoot you Jack McCormick was scared to death by this point and kept looking over his shoulder at Copeland five feet behind him rifle in hand Copeland showed McCormick where the raccoon was supposedly holed up 
and asked him to poke around for the critter. He handed Jack a two-foot-long stick to prod out the raccoon. I'll shoot it if you flush it out, Copeland said. McCormick had sensed a scam when he had hooked up with Copeland, a scam that he had hoped would net both men some cash. But he had figured out the punchline. The only person who was going to benefit by the check-writing scam was Ray Copeland, and the only person who wasn't going to be around to spend any of the money was Jack McCormick. That was not McCormick's notion of a good idea. No. No. So Jack McCormick figured it was time to seriously bail. Ray, I'm getting out of here. I'm quitting. I'm going on, Jack McCormick told him and threw down the stick. You've got to get me to Brookfield or I'm going to hitchhike right now. Ray reluctantly agreed, sensing that this whole thing with Jack McCormick was over. Copeland should have known better. Jack McCormick was older than the other men he had hired. He had a known history of near-classic booze binges, and he was the only worker who understood the check-writing operation. So he was just too smart for this whole thing. Yeah, you can't con a con man. Can't con a con man. So Ray drove Jack to Brookfield where Jack gave him the slip and he even managed to clear out the $139 that remained in the checking account Ray had forced him to set up. <laughs> he figured awesome. It was, yeah, he figured it was due to him, you know, for a few days work. And do you know the attempted murder? <laughs> it's hazard pay. It's trauma. It is his trauma. So it, it was, he ended up looking for a liquor store, but seeing as it wasn't even 10 a.m., he had to settle for a bar called the Helm Street Inn. He downed shot after shot of vodka with a water back. Oof. Bullshit. That's not very Irish of him. No. No, that's just hardened alcoholic of him. Yeah. <laughs> My mom used to say uh, vodka is the heroin of alcohol. <laughs> I take offense to that, Rhonda. I know, because I really like vodka. <laughs> um. So yeah, so he bullshitted with the bartender. He hit on the cook. He told her that he was going to Vegas. He had a pocket full of money and he wanted to treat her to a great time. She was like, I'll pass, thanks. <laughs> and then he finally chatted up a man who came in for an early lunch who happened to be a used car salesman. So keeping his tab open, he went to go test drive a, like an old rust bucket, like a nothing car. And he's while he's wasted. While he's wasted, wait. And then he just drives off and doesn't come back. So he, he left his open tab and the salesman like in the lot. And he's just like, bye. Laters. Wasted. Wasted. <laughs> I uh, know. I mean, that's the car, the used car salesman's fault. You don't go into a bar looking for clients. No, 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 no. Oh, man. And then there was like this whole other part where he w went to a different bar just outside of town and he met this woman named Rose who also seemed like a good drinker. And they got talking and he realized he left some stuff at the Copeland's and they're drunk now. And he's like, I can't go back there. The guy tried to kill me. And she's like, you need to get your belongings. You need to go back there. We're going to go together. I'll go with you. And apparently they went back to the Copeland's farm. And thank God uh, Ray wasn't there. Faye came out and she's mad as hell. And Rose and Faye, like, like, two old ladies are now fighting. And Rose, who's also drunk, is like, 
he deserves his things. He wants to go in and get his things. And <laughs> Faye's like angrily writing down Rose's license plate because Rose drove them over there. And he oh. managed to get his belongings and then get back in the stolen car and leave. Oh my god. I mean, this was a this was a day. I mean, shit show. It was a shit show. Think about this day he had. This is the same day he got up at 5 in the morning, was nearly killed, got wasted, cleaned out a bank account, stole a car, went to another bar, met a woman named Rose, went back to the murder farm. And then he went more he, I guess they got a hotel room and he just drank until blackout with Rose in a hotel room. This guy is what a like, what a day. You left out raccoon hunting. The raccoon hunting. Which at one point, can you just imagine this guy with the raccoon stick being like, I'm about to get shot. Oh, this guy is going to shoot me. And he's got a stick that he's supposed to poke over a non-existent raccoon. It's so scary. It's like so funny, but it would be so scary. I I also would have probably drunken myself to oblivion. I would be like, get me to the nearest bar too. No wonder he's drinking straight vodka. I want to forget this ever happened. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh my God. <sighs> so eventually he he drove to his mother's and he abandoned the hot car and borrowed his mother's card i don't know whether he borrowed it or stole it to be honest and he just drank his way across the midwest because his father had recently passed away and left him a few thousand dollars so he's like oh, cool i'm just going to drink all the way to the west coast and one night, about three weeks after he left the Copeland farm, he was completely shithoused and he stopped at a Nebraska rest stop, like highway rest stop that had a payphone. And he okay. called the Crime Stoppers hotline and just drunkenly was like, You guys, you got to go to the Copeland ranch. <laughs> There's so many dead bodies. And he just told them. That there, that there was like four murdered guys that he saw bones. How did he and know skulls. that? Well, he, it turns out he didn't. He had a gut feeling. It was just speculation. It was just speculation. <laughs> so he's that wasted. drunk fifth sense, you know? It, it his drunk fifth sense came out and he's like, they're murdering men over there. You got to get over there. They're killing everybody. <laughs> And so Nebraska Crime Stoppers are like, can you give us your name? He's like, no, it's anonymous. <laughs> so he didn't tell them who he was. So they're like, uh, okay. Um. <laughs> uh, he told the officers he'd seen murders and mayhem on the farm. So he never actively saw any murders, but he's telling them that he saw murders. He indicated that Ray Copeland had killed four workers over the past several months. It was 7.30 p.m. August 20th, 1989, and the guy who answered the phone, Officer Carey, dutifully copied down the incredible story. Jack McCormick refused to identify himself, and he continued his stupor west. He just got back into his car and kept driving to the West Coast. McCormick <laughs> maintains to this day that he called and told his story out of an interest in truth and justice. 
as a longtime veteran street person, it could well be that Jack McCormick had indeed been concerned about the welfare of his fellow travelers. He'd grown to know these men and boys, felt a certain kinship, and even a fatherly responsibility toward them. Others argue that he may have been trying to shift attention from his own wrongdoings, the bad checks, the stolen cars, et cetera, et cetera, or maybe even trying to extract a little revenge against the old farmer who'd pointed a rifle at his head. The real truth is forever lost in an alcoholic haze somewhere along the highways. And I feel like that's where it should be. That's where it should be. I think he just got really drunk and he started thinking about it and he was like, holy shit, what if they kill more people? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like he's like evil. No. Jack, you know? No, he's so it's like, like genuinely a good guy. I mean, he tries to do things that don't hurt people for the most part, you know? Oh my God, that is so funny. Yeah, he like sobered up enough and he was like, oh, <laughs> he's like, shit. They might kill more people. I better tell somebody about something. But he also, he's he was part of like the check thing. Like he had passed some bad checks already for Ray at that point because there was more than just the failed one time. And he had taken the money that was left in the, the account and he had stolen the car. So he didn't want to say who he was or like get involved deeply, but he did do an anonymous tip, you know? Yeah, I, any criminal wouldn't want to give their name to the cops, no matter what their past wrongdoings exactly. or recently past wrongdoings were. Yeah, I mean, even people who are innocent of past crimes sometimes are very rightfully scared to get involved with law yeah. enforcement, you know? Yeah. Uh, the Nebraska police informed the Chillicothe authorities about this report, and given Ray's checkered past... They decided to maybe take another look at old Ray and Faye. So they didn't necessarily believe that this was true, that there was this Murr farm happening. But it was like another thing on the list of weird shit that Ray Copeland was doing, you know? Yeah. So the sheriff's office was already suspicious of Ray. They had been investigating the spate of bad checks for months now. And there were way more men and bad checks than the ones I have even talked about. So there was a lot more of these bouncing checks all over this like tri-county region um, and missing people. So we think that some of the men were eventually found. A minority of the men were found eventually like having moved on and he did just give them a couple hundred bucks and they got out with their life. And we don't know why some survived and some didn't. But the majority of these guys were never found. Their bodies weren't found and there was no trace of them afterwards. But it's so hard to say because all of them were, you know, hitchhikers or drifters or had alternative lifestyles. And a lot of them had substance abuse problems, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So even though Ray had gotten a little more wily about not allowing witnesses to see him with the men who were bouncing the checks – the cattle auction owners were all deeply suspicious of Ray. So even if they're not seeing them together, they're like, this started with Ray and we have feelings that it's still going on with Ray, even if he's not showing up, you know? Yeah. So he was definitely on their radar and even more so after the Nebraska Crime Stoppers tip came through. But the idea that he was murdering multiple young men on his property was still kind of an absolutely insane thought to these Midwestern police, you know? Well, luckily for us and Missouri law enforcement, and unluckily for our pal Jack, 
Jack was picked up in Salem, Oregon, sleeping a bender off on the side of the road. So he had, I think, run out of money somewhere in Salem. Um, When the Salem PD discovered his outstanding warrant in Missouri and heard his extraordinary tales about the murderous grandfather farmer, they contacted the Mooresville (laughs) Sheriff's Office and Sheriff Hayes decided to fly out to Portland, see what McCormick had to say, and boy, did he have plenty to say. He doubled down. Bones, skulls, murder everywhere. So So crazy. (laughs) They decided to take the personable con man back to Missouri. There he gave statements to law enforcement from the affected counties. So this is what they had to say about old Jack. He is a real likable fellow, Bill Hayes says of McCormick. You kind of figured on some of what he was telling us. He was storying up a little bit. But other parts sure seemed to be right. And he seemed like he knew what he was talking about. Perched in the Sullivan County Jail, Livingston County and Missouri State Highway Patrol officers quickly called on McCormick, interviewed him extensively, and came away thinking the whole Copeland thing was about to blow wide open. They were right. Jack McCormick, looking worse for the wear, but coming back to life in jail with three squares and no booze, repeated his stories about Copeland and what had happened at the farm. For the first time, he implied Faye Copeland was absolutely involved, that she was the business brains and had been in on conversations, setting up the PO box addresses and checking accounts. Up to this point, most of those working on the case had only seriously considered Ray as the prime mover in the growing case. For the next several days, officers continued to pile up information and clues about what McCormick had said and about how it tied into the Copelands. They soon saw they were developing more than enough information to go and arrest the pair and to begin a search. The almost unspoken assumption now was that the search would be for bodies. Whoa. Whoa, heavy. So they took what they had to the DA, which was one, a stack of bad checks with a variety of names and only one check writer alive to tell the story. Highly suspicious. Two... Eyewitnesses who could place Ray Copeland with many of the missing men. Three, a pair of reports from relatives seeking information on men last known to be working for Copeland. Wayne's fiance and PJ's mom both knew him by name because their loved one had mentioned that they were going to work for him. Okay. And four, finally, the interview with McCormick filled with stories of bones and bodies and details on how the scam worked. So they had way enough to go after them. So the DA and a judge declared that that was enough and issued a search warrant and arrest warrants for both Faye and Ray. Or really, Ray and Faye. <laughs> so Ray and Faye get locked up and they aren't saying shit. They are just dummying up. They're, they won't say a damn thing. Meanwhile, a search of their farm is coming up with squat diddly. They've got like 40-something officers out there, backhoes, cadaver dogs, the whole nine. They're tearing the whole 40 acres apart, and they're coming up with nada, niente, bupkis. Weird. Yeah, so they can't find shit, because remember, he didn't bury anybody on his own farm. I thought the three bodies were in his barn. No. So that was kind of misleading. Sorry, guys. That's actually Neil Bryant's barn. Okay, okay, okay. So at this point, they're still on his his farm, which 
I understand from Jack's perspective, it was had to be their farm because it was their barn that he was going to get killed at. But he must have been taking the bodies to another barn. Um, yeah. And she was the one who freaked out when he was walking around their farm. So I don't know. I wouldn't have put it past barns. Ray. I would also wouldn't have put it past Ray to have like just to get rid of um, Jack right then and there to have actually like tried to dispose of him in that barn, you know, just because. Well, they also had the tractor set up so he could just drive his body over in the tractor to a different place, you know. So crazy. So, yeah. So after five or six days, they're like, okay, get that bastard McCormick out here and have him bring us to the bones he saw, which you kind (laughs) of think they would have done from the jump. Yeah, but also he doesn't really know where they are. He's just kind of making that up. (laughs) Yeah, so unfortunately for Jack and his deal, so he had a deal with them to give them this information to avoid prosecution for the bad checks and for the stolen car. Yeah. So he was real wishy-washy on where exactly he saw the bones. So it's in a bit of a pickle. It's in a bit of a pickle now, and that's when it was revealed that he kind of had made the whole thing up. But he was so sure that they were going to find bodies. He was like, I'm telling you, they've killed people. The guys almost killed me. There was just enough that they were like, okay, we're going to keep looking. You're useless. And we're going to pull your deal potentially. So his deal was on the brink of collapse as the search stretched on when they finally expanded the search to Neil Bryan's barn. And I'm not sure if that was Jack's suggestion. Um, He might have identified that he had done work in – you know, another farmer's place, you know? And yeah. then that's where they discovered the bodies of Jimmy Dale, John, and PJ. Once again, Jack had skated by with the skin of his teeth, and Ray and Faye were officially charged with five counts of murder. Well, actually, at this point, they were only charged with three. They ended up doing, like, almost a 130-mile search of all the various, like, farmlands that Ray had access to. Whoa. And then they eventually found Wayne in a different barn and they found Dennis in the well. I, I'm so shocked that they found Dennis in the well. Like 40 feet. Well, Ray kind of gave that one away. So he did. Okay. Yep. So when it was like coming down the heat on Ray and he'd been in jail for several days already, um, they basically were asking him that like we found some bodies um we know you were involved if it wasn't you then you know what criminal activity have you seen on your property or other properties you worked at but they didn't tell him where the bodies were found so ray had repeatedly said over and over again very confidently that they wouldn't find a damn thing on his property and that obviously was the truth but they did reveal that they found other bodies that could only be linked to him And he didn't know where those bodies were, obviously. So he gave away the location of Dennis's bodies when he claimed, I quote, Jack McCormick and two colored guys, I saw them shove a dead man down the well. So he's a serial killer and a racist. Lovely guy, this guy. Unreal. And he was trying to pin the murders on Jack McCormick and some unknown black men apparently and also they're like okay so why didn't you tell us that right from the get-go and he's like i don't know it wasn't my business so they knew to look in a well (sighs) so they looked in all of the wells on the various properties and that's how they found dennis okay yep so 
basically there's a shit ton of evidence against Ray, obviously, plus Jack McCormick, who's like, he almost killed me. But when they searched the Copeland homestead, like the actual house, they found some pretty disturbing evidence that Faye was deeply involved as well. They recovered a list written in Faye's handwriting, which who else because he can't write, with the names <laughs> <laughs> with the names of a dozen or so men next to their names were either an X or the word back. X's were listed next to all five of the dead men, but also a handful of others never found. It was an X or a back? Like X. So either this, it was a big list of like, I don't know, somewhere between like 12 and 15 names, I think. And they either had an X, which was like death, or they said back. And the ones that were listed as back seemed to have been returned to the mission or the homeless shelters that they came from. Because they Like returned back. Returned back. So they tracked down a couple of those guys that had back next to their name. <gasps> oh my God. Uh-huh. Okay, and this is the craziest. Another piece of damning evidence was a quilt that Faye had made. How could a quilt? Of the clothing? <laughs> yes. She of made a quilt of the dead men's clothing. It was a murder quilt. She made a goddamn murder quilt. <laughs> oh, my God. That is too good. Can... That is so creepy. It's so creepy. It's so weirdly grandmotherly farmer lady like I know like that's some real farm style depression era waste not want not shit it's an evidence quilt I'm dying like you couldn't you couldn't donate them you couldn't like even rip them up into you're gonna sew dead men's clothes into a quilt and then what like your grandchildren come over and you're like sleep under the quilt I made so I take it that's where they found the PJ embroidery exactly wow wow yeah so Faye come on (laughs) come on Faye you're not innocent she's not she's not innocent but at least she didn't like do it with like the skin off of their bodies yeah, she's no Ed Gain over here. She's not yeah. making skin quilts. I like that I thought this was really creepy and then you just turned it up a notch. Like, I didn't even think once about skin quilts while I was writing the story. I took it from a 10 to an 11. Yeah, this one goes to 11. <laughs> you know, you just need a little bit more. You need a little yeah. turn, it, turn it up to 11. Oh, it's Spinal Tap. Oh, yes, Christopher Guest. Oh. Guys, if you haven't seen Final Tap, it's so good. I know we have some it's young listeners, and it is worth a refresh. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So any efforts to pin the murders on Jack or anyone else were totally in vain. Like, So like I said, going back to Ray trying to say Jack McCormick was killing all these people, like obviously the timelines don't match up. There's no way – Jack O'Cormick had, like, various felonies in other states at the time these guys were disappearing, you know? Ray absolutely wasn't going to be able to con his way out of this one. So Faye tearfully stuck to her story that she had no idea what Ray was up to. And as far as she knew, he had returned all of those young men to where they had come from. Really? Really? What does this list mean then, Faye? I 
I can just see the list like on one of those like magnet sheets on her fridge. <laughs> yeah, like a honey to-do list, only it's to people to kill. <laughs> she like um, just goes back to it with her sh- with her marker. It's so it's really like, blurry, but I did find a picture of the list. Thank God, because I was gonna have to like replicate it. If you yeah, <laughs> we'll do a reenactment of the list, just like in our handwriting. Oh God. Oh God, that is Love Murder 2.0. We'll start like shooting our own like ID shows. <laughs> Only Andy and I are acting out the murderer and the murdered people every time <laughs> for the only for the only stars of the show only stars of the show oh we'll do it like drunk history <laughs> love um drunk love murder drunk love murder yeah and so yeah so we'll we'll i'll try to get it for you guys for the instagram or give it to andy so she can put it up on the instagram but it's very bad quality. So I don't know if we're going to be able to actually make an image of it or, it, you know, we'll probably try. But yeah, she has like this little like spidery grandma scrawl with all their names and like X's or back written next to them. Crows. Yeah, this is what I was Googling the image to try to count the exact names down because every source I found was like a dozen or so names. I was like, you can't be more specific. How many names were on this list? We're talking about people's lives here. And you're like, "Eh, it was a baker's dozen. I don't know. Like, it's really important information. (laughs) But yeah, the quality of the photo was so bad, I couldn't exactly tell how many names were on it. Okay. <laughs> do we have a photo of the quilt? Uh, no. Which is there should be. I I will do some deep googling on that. At least it didn't come up in my original search. But yeah, deep, we'll do some deep dive. <laughs> We're gonna find some very questionable things when we Google murder quilt. <laughs> this is hopefully Quilts, Google Google search quilts made of dead men's clothing. <laughs> yeah, not dead men. <laughs> Not Andy's skin quilt, please. Thank you. Because I do not need to see that. (laughs) I like that you were like all grossed out last week over a totally benign finger injury. I couldn't even edit that part. I could not even edit that part. This this episode, you're all like thrown out skin quilts. So I don't know. You got weird priorities, lady. Oh my god. So the public opinion in the small town was that they were both super guilty and deserved exactly what was coming to them. One reporter talked to a customer at Brewer's Barbershop and they said they were just flab dab mean, that's all. Just mean and hell, they got caught. String them up, that's what. Which I really like. <laughs> what does a flab dab mean? String them up. That's what. That's some. Um, that's some um, old, old Missouri farmers. Yes. Yeah. So the prosecutors on the case decided to try Faye and Ray separately for a few reasons. One, Faye looks like a kindly old grandmother. The evidence against her was more circumstantial, and they didn't want any sympathy for Faye to poison their case against Ray for good reason. Yeah. Yeah. Two, they hoped that by separating the cases, they could get Faye to turn on Ray, which we've seen in 99% of these cases where there's more than one person involved in the murder. 
Yeah. Three, they incorrectly assumed that Ray's trial would be set first so that they could ride the sure-to-be-guilty verdict over to Faye's trial and get the same result on the harder-to-win case. Unfortunately, Ray ended up in several months of mental competency hearings due to his attorneys arguing that he was in the early stages of dementia. So, Faye's trial There's a difference between not being able to read and write and dementia, sir. Yeah, I, I mean that was just an excuse to try to get him off yep, on the charge. Time. Yeah, yep. Even worse, Faye refused to take a deal to talk. Oh no! Uh huh. Though they offered her the charge of conspiracy to commit murder and a paltry jail sentence of several months to only a few years tops, she Whoa. remained mum, reiterating that she had no knowledge of any evil doing on the farm. Much less where they might find some more bodies. They were literally like, we will only charge you to three months in prison if you tell us where the other bodies are. Because there's lists with X's and there's a million more men's names and these like bad past checks. They're like, they know that there's more victims out there. And, and your closets are overflowing with men's clothing. <laughs> exactly. I mean, she must have been really busy with other things because she only made one murder quill, that lazy bitch. <laughs> oh god with what if she what if she'd already sold them at swap meets or something i was gonna say she oh. probably was selling them oh my you're god. driving by you're driving through missouri and you see a little like curbside roadside little like quilt stand with like an old grandma sewing quilts and you're like oh this is like an upcycled it's vintage t-shirts <laughs> upcycled into a quilt you're so sustainable grams like oh my gosh this is great. if only they knew about the internet and it was a few years later <laughs> she could have had an amazing etsy murder shop and he could have been totally. scamming people online it would have been perfect for both of them they were both born too early you know <laughs> they really were <laughs> really really it's out of time these two So she she stuck to what the story was, which sucks for families of other victims, you know? Yeah. So many people still think that Faye had battered women's syndrome as well as like some form of marital Stockholm syndrome and that yeah. she would protect Ray, her abuser, until the bitter end. And she really, really did. Well, that's her fault. It is. Yeah. I do not have any sympathy for her. Yeah. <laughs> My sympathy lies with all of the victims and their families and all of the unknown victims and their families. So yeah. fuck you, Faye, if we could have, like, brought some closure <laughs> to some other families, you know? Fuck you and your murder real. cult. <laughs> bitch. Murder's old bitch. <laughs> I'm going to pee my pants. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's too good. That was too good. That was too good. Her first-degree murder trial with the death penalty on the table began in November of 1990. Meanwhile, the man she was so stalwartly protecting was still in jail and in and out of mental hospitals during the entirety of her trial, which... Again, this is his wife of over 50 years. His jailers offered to keep him updated, but he never 
not even once asked her about her trial or her welfare in jail during the days of testimony. He simply didn't care. No, that doesn't surprise me at all, considering his relationship with her when they were together. Yeah, apparently she tried to write him a note that the prosecution eventually used, which was, it was basically something being like, in weird offhand language, like she was trying to like cover up what she was saying, saying that they weren't going to find anything. They didn't have anything. Um, I didn't think it was very revealing or I would have included it, but she was trying to like smuggle him letters and she was like asking about him and she was crying every single night. And she was like asking her kids about him when they came to visit. And he was not interested in communicating with her. He didn't give a shit about her. And he didn't even ask about how her trial was going or if she was doing okay in jail crazy mm-hmm. so the prosecution set out to prove that Faye was 100% complicit in an active participant in the murders with obviously the list and the murder quilt evidence as well as Jack McCormick's testimony so that's what they had Faye's public defender's defense was that she was an abused woman in an old-fashioned in quotations traditional marriage and that Ew. Yeah, that basically their marriage was that he did whatever he wanted and she couldn't ask any questions. I like that that's quote-unquote traditional. Traditional like, marriage, off. yeah. Oh, my God. If that's traditional marriage. Yeah, the uh, the prosecutor said, like, I have what I consider traditional marriage with my wife, and she knows where I am every goddamn second of every goddamn day. He's like, so don't come out with this traditional marriage shit where the woman's kept in the dark. So ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Jack testified to Faye keeping meticulous records, being involved in the P.O. Box checking account scams, chasing him off while he walked around the farm, and what he perceived to be an equal and involved relationship. He charmed the jury and brought levity to the courtroom with his self-deprecating manner. And even at one point, I guess that, you know, every time we talk about like if it's an ex-con who's one of the major, you know, witnesses in the trial, the prosecutor always has to start by being like, you know, they also committed crimes. You might not like this guy, but he's being honest, you know? And so I yeah. guess that he did that about Jack, like being like, sure, he's a wino who steals cars and, you know, goes on drinking binges, but he was almost killed and he's a good guy and he's being honest now and it's with his help and his tips from the goodness of his heart that we, you know, discovered this people. So they gave a big, like, caveat when they introduced him. And apparently he gets on the stand and he starts, the prosecutor starts asking him questions and he interrupts him. He's like, excuse me, you said yesterday I was a bum and I want to correct that. I wasn't a bum. I was a tramp. A bum doesn't work. A tramp does. I worked hard to get money to drink. <laughs> oh, my God. I yeah. love him. So everybody was, like, dying. The jury just loved him and ate up everything he said because he was just, like, really funny and self-deprecating and honest the whole time. Oh, my God. So though the defense worked hard to paint Faye as a clueless victim – it was an uphill battle to get the stony Missouri jury to see it that way when five men lay dead, true victims of grisly crimes. In his closing arguments, Prosecutor Doug Roberts said, if Faye was a victim, who dumped her down a well? Who buried her in three inches of dirt? She was a victim, all right, a victim of her own stupidity and greed. Yep. Ouch. Yeah, the jury deliberated for just under three hours, which is... 
I mean, that's just time to get the paperwork done and maybe grab a free lunch. That is no time at all. Yeah. So they proclaimed Faye Copeland guilty of first degree murder on all five counts. The Copeland children. first. First degree murder. That's crazy. Yeah, I guess actually I think it was guilty of first degree murder on four counts. And then there was one that was like second degree murder for some reason. But anyway, she wasn't she wasn't getting out of jail anytime soon. Mm-mm. The Copeland children were absolutely devastated. Well, they did not give a shit about their father and they told everybody in the press that they believed their father was guilty. They really did feel like their mother had been abused. They felt like she was probably knowledgeable of the crimes, but she was innocent of actually hurting people. So then she should have then she should have helped with the cops when they were 100%. I think that if this was one singular event, then we could kind of be like, okay, he killed somebody. She didn't know until afterwards. Maybe she didn't go to the police right away, but you know, there's a history of abuse. She was scared. She was scared. But when it happens over and over and over again, she was a a prime participant because she could have saved those men's life by turning him in. Yeah. And she was the only one out of the two of them that could write. Exactly. So every single one of those men passed the first one and even kind of the first one, she was absolutely as guilty as him in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So all of the kids, you know, like I said, they were sympathetic towards their mom. So they testified on her behalf during the the sentencing portion of the trial because you know how they do the trial, then they declare them guilty and then they allow both sides to say things and then um, the judge or the jury decide their fate. Um, So this is what their kids said. Bonnie Copeland, Wayne's wife, who is a correctional officer at a prison not far away from Chillicothe, Chillicothe? Chile. Yeah. Chillicothe (laughs) said it was her opinion that Ray Copeland treated his wife like trash. She said, Ray made the decisions she followed. Betty Copeland Gibson, who now lives in Kentucky, painfully recounted growing up in the Copeland house, noting that she had moved out before she was 18. My dad ran the home. His word was final, and we knew when the word came down to shut up. My mom idolized my dad, but she knew her place, and she also knew when to shut up, the daughter said, her agony obvious. I never heard him tell her he loved her, she said, not even once, her head bowed. Al Copeland, who also left home well before his 20th birthday, said, My father tried to domineer her. You did it his way or no way, Al said. I think he treated her a lot worse than trash, actually. So the, ki- the kids were very sympathetic to their mother. But unfortunately, the jury didn't give a flying fig Newton, and they sentenced her to death. <laughs> what? Death penalty for old Faye. Holy shit. Isn't that – that seems like a – like, I, I was, like, kind of railing against the murderous old she, bitch early, but that seems a bit extreme. She, She's already old as shit. Well, that's okay. This is, I know Andy and I have talked about this before, so I know she agrees with me, where sometimes a death penalty verdict can feel cathartic, but we both don't believe in the death penalty because too many innocent people die. Yeah. But yeah, every once in a while you get a case where somebody's so bad and you're like, yay, death penalty, because they're terrible people and you know for sure they did it, right? Yeah, or if it, like, takes place in Texas, you're like, no. <laughs> you just it's know gonna. it's going to happen. Yeah. We've talked about this, I think, a little bit before. Um, this For sure. case, 
She's old as hell. She's going to die in prison. Just L Whopper. Just give her life without the possibility of parole. That's a death sentence in and of itself. For sure. I mean, just living. Her just living her day to day is a death sentence at this point. I mean, any day without that murder quilt that she can snuggle up <laughs> next to, you know, it's like she's it's painstaking enough as is. Yeah. So this seems extremely extreme in my opinion. But (laughs) (laughs) that's what the jury went with. Can you believe that? No, that is, I'm shook. (laughs) So the morning after the verdict, with the execution sentence handed down, uh, the sheriff was taking Ray Copeland to a Kansas City hospital for further mental examinations. Oh, God. Yeah, so he asked Ray, did you hear about the verdict? Nah, what happened? Well, they found her guilty and recommended execution for her, Ray, the sheriff said carefully. Well, those things happen to some, you know. That's what he said. He never asked about her again. Not surprised at all. Ugh. Ugh, I just disgusted. Piece of shit. He is a piece of shit. So Faye's sentenced to death, and now it's Ray's turn up to bat. At this point, so they they decided that they could, he was deemed totally mentally competent. So he's standing t- I trial mean, why, why even do the trial? They were, like, going to make it easier for Faye. It's like, the like what are they going to do, kill him twice? <laughs> yeah. So, so Doug Roberts felt it was unnecessary, just like you're saying, to put Ray through a trial because – the county has to pay for this trial. It's obviously getting a lot more media attention than they would have liked. And Ray's defense attorney suggests that Ray would plead guilty to get the death penalty taken off the table because his his attorneys are like, if your wife got the death penalty, you are 100% getting the death penalty, you know? Yeah. So Doug, the prosecutor, is like, hell yeah, this saves the town money. And we get it. We he's gonna die in prison. He's do he's saying he'll plead guilty and he'll do life without the possibility of parole just to get the death penalty taken off. So let's go with this, right? I mean, it would seem like anyone would be happy with it. If, either way, he's gonna die in jail. So who cared? Well, what a little bitch. That's not what happens though, because the state's attorney general and the judge on the case did care. The judge removed Doug Roberts as the lead prosecutor and appointed the second chair, Kenny Hulshoff, to take over. Apparently, the attorney general, Bill Webster, was planning on running for governor and getting two death sentences for these highly publicized trials was going to be a linchpin of his law and order campaign. Oh, my God. So he wanted the publicity. He wanted two death penalty sentences. He wanted to be able to campaign and say, we don't allow murder in our state, you know? Isn't that crazy? So they went ahead and had a trial. It's not like he's, like, letting a murder off. You know what I mean? I feel like, obviously, I don't think, like, it's fair when anyone in any sort of political position uses something for – to motivate and advance their career, but at least it's not going the other way where he's like, I don't want to have a murder on our books. Let's yes. not, you know what I mean? Let's like, not prosecute. Death penalty on our books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So he's like, let's string them up. Just like those people in town said. 
So the crusty old farmer's trial began March 7th, 1991, and the trial was pretty straightforward. Ray was so clearly guilty. The only thing that the defense could do was try to cast blame and create reasonable doubt around Jack McCormick's character as the lead witness. So they brought the used car salesman in and other people to testify about, you know, Jack's lack of morality and his criminal activity. Nonetheless, the jury was not swayed. And this time, none of his children spoke up for him like they did for their mother. Um, So he was swiftly and easily proclaimed guilty of first degree murder on all five counts. And he was also, like his wife, sentenced to death. So together, Ray at 76 and Faye at 69 were officially the oldest couple to ever be on death row. Wow. They should feel really proud. (laughs) We all got one thing we were known for, right? So proud. Well, unsurprisingly, old Ray suffered a stroke and died in prison on October 19th, 1993. Of course, all that badness in him. All that evil. According to sources, he never again spoke with his loyal wife. Ew. He died alone and beloved by not a single soul except for old poor Faye. After his death, Faye's lawyers appealed successfully to get her death sentence overturned. So she did get off death row. They basically, she did come out and say some things against Ray later on. Like, not that he did it, but just that he was abusive. And she, like, she wouldn't say he was abusive during the first trial. She wouldn't say that he hit her or hurt her or anything. She stood by her man completely. And so after he was gone, her uh, her lawyers successfully did get her to testify that she was beat and that she had been abused their entire marriage. And she did say that about him. And then they were like, okay, let's be compassionate about this and let's just keep her in prison but overturn the death sentence. Yeah. Which is what they did. She suffered a paralyzing stroke in 2002. And she was given well, – both? Both strokes. Yep. Crazy. And she was given compassionate release to a Chillicothe nursing home where she died a year later at the age of 82. So That's good. She got to – did her kids come visit then her? Then her kids got to come visit her. Cool. There was two sons that were pretty local to that area, so they got to see her a lot in her last year. But she was paralyzed. I mean, she just really wasn't all there. It would have been cruel to keep yeah. her in the prison system. To this day, there are open investigations on seven other men believed to have been potentially murdered by the Copelands. Three men have been identified positively as victims, but they have never been found dead or alive. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about those guys. Uh, So these were the three men that we are 99.9% sure were additional victims. Thomas Park, 52, when he was last seen in February 1989, has never been located. Records indicate Ray Copeland hired the man February 17th of that year, and the drifter was last seen 11 days later. Park's sister attended the Ray Copeland trial, hoping that she'd be able to find information that could lead her to her brother, but none developed. It's tearing me apart, said Park's sister, Carolyn Barrett. I know I'll never see him again. Franklin Hudson, 42, when hired by Ray Copeland. The checks and address applications place Hudson with Ray Copeland from May 9th to May 20th, 1989, according to Gary Calvert. 
His mother came to the Ray Copeland trial, hoping either Ray or Faye would finally break down and tell her something about her son. I'd like to see Ray Copeland out in the desert on an anthill with syrup all over him, Anne Hudson said. <laughs> raw. Anne yeah. Hudson's raw. Get it, Anne Hudson. Ooh. Dale Brake, 32 when last seen, is linked to Ray Copeland from November 9th through November 11th, 1988, according to Calvert's records. His sister came to the trials. Doris Hilliard said that her missing brother was a father of four children. There's no punishment enough for Ray Copeland, she said, or for her either, for that matter. So a lot of loved ones with a lot of questions left. And those two assholes are dead and buried and their secrets died with them i mean think about it those three men that you read about like they had people who were close to them there have to be other people who didn't have yeah they they speculate that the victims could be up to 12 but i mean there could be more we don't know yeah it's that easy to dispose of them like he said oh oh so gross so talk about like someone's life like that he just – he was I, – I mean, it's interesting. It's like a kind of like the farming lifestyle made him think of these people like livestock or like, yeah. you know, like raccoons or like critters, you know, like just people that he could – ugh, dispose it's just – it just dispose of, you know. It's terrible. Yeah. But he would have found a way to do that in any field because he was just a bad person. Yeah, he was absolutely sociopathic. Yeah. Oh, I got him. Sorry, guys. This was a bummer. I mean, they're all bummers. <laughs> Anything that is about murder is a bummer. Oh, man. Well, so that's the story. <laughs> Thanks to everyone out there for listening. If you made it this murder quilty far, please take a minute to give us a five-star rating. Maybe drop a line. We had some great reviews this week so thanks out there to Anastasia in Illinois that's you know I think the one that came in today you guys make this job worth doing so thank you thank you in conclusion cattle wrestling cattle rustling cattle rustling is a bad hustle guys don't do it stay away from stealing cattle I know we're all super bored with you know COVID quarantine and all that but it's never Never, never a good time to do a murder quilt. (laughs) Especially not a skin quilt. Don't do it. (laughs) Gross, Jesse. You brought it up. (laughs) I'm just copying you. And as always, we're all just one really bad farmhand job away from getting murdered. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. It's funny because it's farmhand a job, but it's <laughs> I didn't even think about that. We're also all just one bad hand job away from <laughs> getting murdered. <laughs> close on that oh, one. Oh, too good. Just too close good. on that one. Yeah, there we go. Okay, <laughs> bye guys again. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>